welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Carly. And I'm your co-host, Laura. And today we are here with Erin. Thank you so much for being here today, Erin. Thank you, guys. Um, so to get started, can you tell us uh, what department you're from and uh, just give us an overview of your research? Yeah, I'm from the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at Schulich, and my research underlies COVID-19, or in my case, I study SARS-CoV-2, which is the uh, virus that has led to the COVID-19 pandemic. My research uses predictive analytics, so computer modeling, to estimate the number of infections of SARS-CoV-2 that are currently circulating, as well as how those are infections are migrating between countries. Cool. So. If this is an overview, we have to start by defining uh, each part of what you, you just said. So when you talk about infections, do you talk about the number of people that is infected or the number of viruses that are, are out there? And then when you talk about migration patterns, uh, what is it specifically that you're talking about? Yeah, so the number of infections, I'm talking about truly the number of people that are infected. And in my modeling, this is predictive by variant. So how many people are infected with a variant, for example, Omicron globally, or for a lesser known variant, such as BA 2.75.2. Is there a lot of people infected like this, with this variant? And is it not being seen by public health officials? Or is it just a few? And we're recording the amount of infections pretty well for that variant. In terms of migration, what I'm looking at is how fast are different variants going between countries? And so for example, Omicron, when it first emerged, how fast did it come into Canada? And how fast did it spread from Canada to other countries? This helps inform public health officials as to whether they should close borders or is it really transmitting within the countries and closing borders really doesn't do anything. Okay, so excellent. You, you're, you're talking about how you're studying um... Uh, basically how SARS-CoV-2 evolves and moves over time. So how is it that you, how you, that you do this? Yeah, how I go about uh, predicting the number of infections and how viruses are migrating is by creating predictive models. And these models are based off of simulations. So basically what I do is I simulate an epidemic over time using parameters that are similar to the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And so we start with a population where every single individual is susceptible to this SARS-CoV-2-like virus that I'm simulating. And there's one infected individual. And that one infected individual goes on to infect other individuals, which then transmit over time until everybody goes, or the vast majority of my susceptible population I've simulated becomes infected and then recovered. During this time, I then take my infected populations and at any point in time along that simulation, I can stop them and I can count how many infected individuals are there. And from those infected individuals in those stop in times, I can go and create a transmission history tree, which is how uh, different individuals are transmitted to each other and then simulate evolution along this transmission history to get out genetic sequences, much like genetic sequences that are pre-existing for SARS-CoV-2. From those genetic sequences, I can then create a model where I analyze the number of infections back to the genetic sequences. And this is done by creating what's called a phylogenetic tree. Or a phylogenetic tree is like 
my genetic sequences are the children, and they connect back to the grandparents, which connect back to the great grandparents, so on and so forth. We also know the amount of time in terms of mutations or genetic changes between these children and their grandparents. And I extract from those trees what are called summary statistics, which show how they're related a little bit to create a statistical model of how many infections exist. So when you're looking at these models, are you applying these models individually to all of the different variants? And if so, when you're doing the, this modeling, do you have to take into consideration parameters such as how transmiss transmissible a particular variant is? Yeah. And so we are applying this to each of the variants individually. And you do need to take into account how transmissible it is because each of these variants have different amounts of transmissibility. But the model itself already inherently does this. So when we created the model from these simulations, we changed these parameters. We started with values from the literature, uh, from all of the vast information that exists about SARS-CoV-2, such as the transmissibility, and we took that average. And then we, we uh, varied it along um, with that average still being in the mean to get models that represented the different different ways that SARS-CoV-2 might be transmitted or the rate at which it mutates, so that our model was robust to those changes. And comparative models that do similar things, how we kind of showed are not as robust. Sorry, and just a quick follow-up on that. I was just curious too, if, if population dynamics plays a role in your model at all, like, or are you just looking at kind of an idealistic population or are you taking into consideration that some populations might have a large majority of elderly people who are more susceptible to getting infected? So at the moment, our models are just this ideal scenario of what if a pandemic went according to all of the rules of mathematics, what would that pandemic be like? Uh, future research, I think it would be super, super interesting to change some of these parameters. One thing that is super interesting to me is, can we look at different sex and gender changes? Because we know the rate at which contacts happen are different between genders, and there is also sex differences um, in how SARS-CoV-2 affects different individuals. So could we model those in those populations that we're looking at, as well as, like you said, elderly versus younger populations, and also including in um, some of what happened when we brought in lockdowns. Did that change things, that kind of thing? Um, so currently it's this ideal scenario because in the mathematical modeling realm, it is really hard to include those factors. It's actually something that a lot of mathematicians have been working really, really hard to figure out how to do. And so we started simple. Thank you, Erin. I think that's a great explanation. And uh, in order for us to put this maybe like in a very, very like easy to imagine way. Uh, so what I understand so far, it's let's say that we have a population. Uh, you have, you're, you're studying SARS-CoV-2 viruses, but just to make it easier, let's imagine that we have a population of humans. <laughs> and then from that population of humans, uh, you are able to build phylogenies. That is how those humans are related, let's say, or in this case, viruses, of course, but like let's, for the sake of the example, so you create how things are related, and then those relationships have some type, some different parameters. So when you talk about parameters uh, and that parameters change the the way in which uh, viruses migrate or uh, any type of organism migrate or migrate of change over time, what do you mean? Can can you give give us like an example of how that will affect the relationship between between organisms, because I'm imagining, for example, in humans, if you have um, uh, like a, a large family of people who really like having kids, 
and then type of humans that are more solitary. Then like those uh, trends will change the way in, in which those uh, trees are going to be built and in, in which these relationships will, will occur, right? But for viruses, I'm wondering how or which kind of things affect the way in which viruses relate. So therefore, how you parameterize or like how to use these parameters in order to inform your models. Yeah, uh, there's four main parameters that are varied in our models and then a few additional ones, but I'm gonna focus on these four main parameters. And the first one is a parameter called R0 or the effective reproductive number. And basically what this number is, is how many individuals would get infected by one individual if no, they had seen no other exposure to the virus. So for example, if I had SARS-CoV-2 and nobody else in the population did, how many people would I infect? Just me. So for SARS-CoV-2, this average is 2.87. So on average, if nobody else had SARS-CoV-2 and it was just me, I would infect 2.87 other people. In some variants, though, we've noticed this is high as four. And this drives how fast the pandemic is going to happen. The second parameter that we like to look at is the mean latent period. So this is the amount of time it takes from somebody to be exposed to the virus to the amount of time that they can transmit the virus onto other individuals. Um, so for SARS-CoV-2, this is about three days three days between me being infected and getting exposed to the virus before I can transmit it onto somebody else. Then there's the mean infectious period, and this is the amount of time that I can pass on the virus for. And in our models, it's 13 days, because that was kind of based off the start of the pandemic, where we said about 14 days you should be isolating for. So 13 days, on average, I can pass on the virus to other individuals. And then the last parameter that we change is called the molecular clock. And this is how fast a virus evolves over time. So how many mutations per day does the virus get? And this goes into converting those transmission trees I was talking about. So Jimmy transmits onto Sally, who transmits onto Sue, into um, when we get the relationship between viruses. Okay, so I'm, I'm curious kind of about the, the information that you input into this model. So kind of what data are you getting and, and putting into this model, like in terms of like you're looking at different viral sequences and that's what you're using to, to analyze these mutation rates and such, if I'm understanding that correctly? Yeah. So the data that I'm inputting into the model is the simulated data. That's how I created the model. But the data that we'll actually apply it to is actual SARS-CoV-2 genetic data. And SARS-CoV-2 genetic data is very, very cool because it's super, super vast. It's the most data that we've ever, ever had kind of in this world of bioinformatics. And as of when I just checked a couple of weeks ago, there were more than 13.5 million SARS-CoV-2 genetic genomes that were circulating on a data, database called GSAT. Um, and this is where all of the SARS-CoV-2 genomes are located. For a comparison metric, uh, for flu on that same database, because they also include the SARS-CoV-2, um, they also include flu on that database, there were only about 390,000 sequences. There were about 25,000 respiratory syncytial virus sequences and about 3,500 monkeypox sequences. So it's way more data than we've ever seen before. And all of this data, as most of the 13.5 million sequences, unless it's like bad data, get input into this model eventually once I start applying it to SARS-CoV-2 data. Okay. 
Okay, so you start with with one single sequence. Then from that sequence, you create a model, like you simulate, you create a model, and then in that model, you keep informing it with the data that is produced every time. And then from that information, you're able to estimate, okay, uh, how are the number of infections going to increase or decrease over time? Is that correct? Not quite increase or decrease over time. How many infections about are right now? And so, mm. um, we've applied it to different time points. And so I've been able to look at um, how have certain variants of SARS-CoV-2, so for example, a variant would be like Omicron, changed over time. But really when we apply it, it would be like right now, how many Omicron, uh, how many individuals are infected with Omicron at this moment? That's super cool, Erin. And now that you know how so from the data that you're feeding into your model, you're saying how many people are infected. Now, will that change based on the number of sequences that are being generated? Because I know so some countries are producing a very large amount of data, whether some other countries are just able to sequence a couple of a couple of viruses, maybe. Um, it, so it's very different, uh, the, the number of of sequences that every country produces. So are you noticing that your models are affected by, by those numbers? So uh, we did kind of test this and we took sequencing numbers as low as 100. So for some, um, some variants, we said that we only sequenced 100 individuals in our quote unquote model that we created. Uh, and it seems to be robust to those low numbers. However, I do have concerns that it might actually not be robust to high numbers of sequences. And so if we're sequencing in like the 300,000s and things like that, I can't actually simulate those numbers because it takes, my computer just doesn't have enough processing power for it. And so I'm really afraid that at those high numbers, the model starts to break down. And when I ran on some SARS-CoV-2 data, it kind of seemed like this might be the case. So I think when we sequence near the true number of infections, the model isn't as accurate. So I'm curious on just kind of where you're at um, in your project. So have you, is your model fully developed and you've, have you actually been able to apply it to any, like a real world situation and has it been effective in predicting the number of infections? Yeah, so the model's pretty much there. Um, I'm just uh, finishing off the last few things on it right now. I've had to rerun the simulations a few times, um, but I have been able to preliminarily apply it to some SARS-CoV-2 data, keeping in mind this is still really preliminary and was not with the perfected model that I'm working with now. Uh, but one of the things that we tested was we looked at data from Denmark and data from the United States. And in Denmark, they've done a really, really good job of sequencing their infections. And so the uh, pretty much close to almost every single infection that they test positive in um, a facility testing, not those rapid antigen tests, not the ones you do at home, uh, they sequence. And so the amount of infections in Denmark should be theoretically pretty close to, uh, to the predicted number of infections. And so we did see this, we were still predicting a little bit higher, um, but not as much as we were predicting with the United States. United States, we were predicting sometimes 10 times more infections than they were sequencing. And so this kind of tells us that our model does work on SARS-CoV-2 data. Of course, I do need to dive into this a little bit further to confirm.
I'm glad you brought up the rapid antigen test because I was curious about that. I'm wondering if you think your model might overestimate or your model might overestimate the number of inf infections compared to what's actually reported because more people actually are infected, but they're being diagnosed via these rapid antigen tests at home. And then that's not actually being reported to public health that that infection exists. Yeah, uh, that's actually kind of the goal of the model when we set out on this. We knew that uh, testing was going to decrease over time. So when we started um, a year and a bit ago, pe we, people were still getting uh, tests in the facilities so those could be recorded. But by the time I was like not even one semester in, everybody was using these rapid antigen tests and the number of reported infections kind of fell off. Um, completely because people were not going into getting tested and really you couldn't get tested was the bigger thing. Like I think now only healthcare, um, it, only people in healthcare can get tested. And so our reporting is kind of wildly off. And this came in as just like a way to supplement what we've actually been doing with wastewater sampling. And so wastewater sampling goes in and then analyzes uh, different wastewater areas to see if we can do like um, some quantification of what variants are circulating and stuff like this, but this just adds on top of that. And so it's in these data sources, when we don't have that PCR data, what else can we use? Sorry, uh, you have created a very interesting model for SARS-CoV-2. Um, and what, what I'm wondering is, will be able will that be able to work for other viruses? Because for example, there's flu circulating and then I can imagine that more viruses eventually will come. Uh, will you be able to use these models that you just created in order to predict the number of infect infected people uh, for other viruses? Yeah. So the model itself was created for SARS-CoV-2. We use the parameters of SARS-CoV-2, uh, those things I talked about before, like um, effective reproduction number, that was specific to SARS-CoV-2, and the simulations were ran that way. However, in creating these simulations, I wrote code that makes it so that the simulations could easily be rerun and easily modified for any other virus. And so that model could easily be created for the flu or for something else, but I wouldn't use the model that I've created for the flu. I would recreate the model by rerunning the simulations. So to follow up in that, it, it looks like uh, you're in your second year master's uh, and you came into the master's right in the middle of a pandemic and you started working with this data. Uh, so can you tell us about how that experience has been like just coming like to grad school and work on what everyone is worried about in the moment, what has been maybe the most challenging or the most stressful part of this process? Yeah, um, so most challenging and most stressful coming in and working on SARS-CoV-2 as it's been this big thing. I would say like at the beginning of it, it wasn't that big of a deal for me because I was really interested in SARS-CoV-2. I actually got in to like started thinking about grad school because of SARS-CoV-2 when I was in my undergrad and in third year, I uh, was assigned a project in a bioinformatics class to analyze a data source. And my mom actually came up to me and was like, there's this virus circulating somewhere before we actually knew what it was, the thing. And it was when the pandemic started. She's like, you should analyze this for your project. Um, and so I analyzed that data and that actually led to a research project over the summer in my undergrad um, on the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which was published um, in like October, 2021. And 
we, and that was like what really got me into virology and the field of viral bioinformatics. So I probably wouldn't have even done grad school. I'm not 100% sure if it hadn't been for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but in terms of the most stressful thing about studying SARS-CoV-2 as we're in this pandemic and stuff like that is that kind of when everybody else has been able to take a step back and be like, ah, I'm going to kind of worry about other things in my life. I'm still seeing firsthand every day, like, oh my God, there's this much circulating. And so I haven't been able to like, let myself be free of the virus like other people might have been able to. Kind of to go off of that, this is kind of more of a, a personal question. I'm just curious, like there's been a lot of divide in our society about COVID, whether it be the vaccines, whether it's all a government hoax, whatever people's theories are. I'm just wondering if this being the focus of your research, if that has caused any kind of conflict in in your life per se. I would say not so much conflict in my life. Um, I think frustration with people at times per se. Uh, so for example, like, I've never stopped masking at a grocery store. Just, it's part of my research. It's what I feel about. Um, and so when people were like, oh, we got to stop masking, it kind of like, I was like, yeah, but like, do you, have you, have you, what scientific evidence do you have to pack that up? Um, and I think that's kind of the more frustrating thing for me. Uh, and then especially like discussions now, like I'll, I, I was analyzing one variant a couple of weeks ago that I was really scared about. And I put up a Facebook post telling my friends like, hey, maybe you should start masking again. And I got one like, and it was like incredibly disheartening. I was like, uh, okay, uh -huh. so you guys really don't care anymore. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's very interesting because I think that you're one of the few people who actually know how many how like the number of people who are actually infect currently infected, right? I think that uh, it's okay to move on with life and uh, just you know like so, so someone can have it and just like uh, continue because you know it's it's become it has become part of our just daily life. Sometimes you get sick, sometimes you don't. Like we are all vaccinated as at least in university and so on so I kind of understand that people just want to get over it and get get over it and continue doing other stuff but I can see how you being someone who actually know the numbers uh of course it's it's hard to like step away from from wanting to protect yourself and everyone you love right because you you actually know how how present it still is around us yeah, um, I, I think that's kind of spot on with it, what it is. Um, and it's not like, like, I'm the same as everybody else. Like, I, I think it's something we have to live with. It's not going anywhere. Um, but because I can, like, kind of see the highs and the lows, it's those moments when I'm like, okay, like, it, is it the end of the world to put on a mask in a grocery store for the next month? <laughs> like, is that going to affect your quality of life? Not really, but it could protect you against an illness. So it's like those conversations that are kind of disheartening to me. I'm like, go have fun. Go do what you want. But like when you're in really, really public spaces, it's a piece of fabric. Fair. And now uh, for the other part, not only the being sick part, what about the coding? What can you tell us about how that experience has been uh, like facing 
models computing all the time being in front of a computer seeing a lot of sequences it's hard to even tell what you're looking at uh, as someone who also worked with sequences it's like those are just letters <laughs> and i'm uh, i'm trying to count mutations right but it's like sometimes even hard to bring it all to real life so how's that part of your life and your your experience been so far yeah um I think there's like like any kind of graduate degree there's days where it's really really exciting and I'm super super excited with my results and I get into my coding and I'm kind of in this route this this realm where I'm just like typing away and don't even want to stop and then there's days where I'm rerunning the same simulation over and over and have been doing it for five weeks just to find another bug which is super super frustrating um and so I think the exciting part is like being able to contribute to this, like to to do what I love in the world of bioinformatics um, and contribute to public health. Um, and then the big frustration is just like every day, like running these analyses that take like 48 hours to run just to finish them running and be like, ah, that one didn't work. <laughs> Yeah, I could see how that would be very frustrating. Um, so I'm curious, kind of, you said, uh, we said that you're in the second year of your master's. So the end is kind of in sight for you. I'm wondering what your what your next plans are. Yeah, so I actually applied to medical school this um, this round around. So I'm hoping that I get in there and can go on to medical school. Um, I love the world of bioinformatics and would love to be able to kind of continue with bioinformatics but I sometimes feel like I'm disconnected from the clinical side. Um, and so what I was saying before, especially like in the world of SARS-CoV-2, I'll find something that's really, really interesting and be like, oh, that's the coolest thing ever. And then it takes me a while to take a step back and be like, well, that actually has true real world impacts on population health. And so I think by going and pursuing a medical degree as well, I can work clinical side with the, with patients and not have that disconnect anymore, but I don't want to give up on bioinformatics either. So research position, I'm not really sure. So do you see your model being helpful for you like in the future or like uh, maybe not even SARS-CoV-2, but other epidemics, right? Like now you're going to be in contact with actual patients. So you have an idea of how what's happening out there. So do you see yourself using kind of what um, you learn in your master's? Definitely see what myself using what I learned in my master's. Whether I continue to use the model, we'll see. Maybe if there's like suddenly patients coming in with a virus that we don't know very much about and, I, uh, and I'm and i seeing them on a day-to-day -day basis, like I could dig it out again, run it and see how much is circulating, um, just kind of as like, like help inform how to practice in the clinic. But I would say like the skills are very transferable. So even if the model's not used, learning how to create those models, learning how to program, um, learning how to analyze this data will absolutely help me in my future. Um, and I'm also just kind of curious, like you said, you started your master's during the pandemic, but since most of your research is kind of in front of the computer, have you felt that going to grad school during the pandemic has really kind of impacted your, your graduate school experience? Um, I would say like socially, it was hard to make friends at first because I traveled across the country for grad school, which was a bit of a bit difficult. But like in terms of research, not really. Um, 
I really like working from home. And so I kind of love that about the bioinformatics world that I can work from home if I want to. Uh, and so I I think like what the pandemic did allow me was it created this world where we're allowed to work from home. Um, and so in terms of research, I would say it was almost more positive for me than it was negative. Cool. Erin, I think this has been like a very interesting, interesting interview and we've seen someone who started grad school on a pandemic <laughs> use uh, sequences to inform models that are brand, brand new and maybe will help informing like political decisions and make us all more careful about uh, maybe future pandemics. And now we, we will see how your journey goes to keep helping people because that's clearly what you like. So if anyone would like to maybe know, uh, know more about you or contact you and learn about your work, uh, is there anywhere you could direct them to? Yeah, um, you can find me on LinkedIn is the first one. So if you look up Erin Britnell on LinkedIn, um, that's an option. I'm also on Instagram um, at smoresperson3. So smores as in the marshmallows, sandwiches, person3 is my Instagram. Hey, great. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Carly, and my co-host was Laura. We've been speaking with Aaron, and this episode was produced by Laura. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Select podcasts have also been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.